Good evening. Last week on the History of Medicine, we went over the story of Gerard Domag, who discovered sulfa drugs, a huge step toward modern medicines as we know it. However, the most famous story of antibiotic discovery is almost certainly that of Alec Fleming and penicillin. I'm sure you are all huge fans of him too, so let's get started. Let me start first with Fleming's childhood. He was born on August 6, 1881, when our good friend Pasteur was doing good work figuring out germ theory. The Flemings were not wealthy, but lived comfortably, and maintained a large farm of some crops, cattle, and sheep on their farm in Scotland. Alexander, known as Alec in his family, grew up in a household comprised of his parents, his siblings, four step-siblings from a previous marriage, and four from the same mother. Their family life was a happy one, with much credit going to their mother, praised by everybody involved. Fleming was keen on a whole lot of different activities, uh, with a theme of careful observation linking all of them. He enjoyed hunting, meaning that he would catch rabbits with his bare hands, which I find very impressive, and he would fish with handmade rods and hooks. He was a keen bird watcher, and in general enjoyed observing much of nature, which would grant him skills that would serve him very well. Later on, he and most of the family moved to London. He attended school, where he quickly advanced, and at 16 was placed as a junior shipping clerk at the urging of his brother. Apparently, he was a diligent worker, but also bored out of his mind. As such, two years later, he joined the military when the Boer War necessitated further recruits. As part of the London Scottish Regiment, Fleming was given the opportunity to make some friends his age outside of his immediate family for the first time. He never rose above the rank of private, but he did make friends, he learned to swim, and he played water polo. One of his games was against the St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, his first exposure to the institution. When it came around time to apply to medical school, he recalled St. Mary's from his game, and he applied, which both parties would very much benefit from down the line. In 1901, Fleming inherits about 250 pounds, and he puts it towards learning Latin and applying to school. He also applied for entrance scholarship, which covered all his tuition. As with his earlier schooling, he did exceedingly well, winning prizes in, uh, let's see here, we got anatomy, physiology, histology, and the Junior General Proficiency Prize for All-Round Student of the Year. He additionally cleared the pathology, medicine, medical jurisprudence, second general proficiency, third general proficiency, and psychological medicine prizes. At the end of the minimum five years, Fleming was a certified doctor and interested in pursuing the gore and glory of surgery. Fleming, in summary, was a monster. New doctors at the time generally had two options. Go into general practice or work at the hospital they were a student at. General practice, however, required startup money. Working at the hospital to start was often unpaid, and Fleming was in need of cash. Fleming again was guided towards his future by random extracurricular activities. This is thanks to another doctor, John Freeman, who worked in the inoculation department, and was also a major member of St. Mary's Rifle Club. Fleming was apparently a very good shot, so much so that Freeman was determined to keep Fleming working at St. Mary's for the sake of their team. Through some connections, he managed to get a paid position as a junior assistant in the inoculation department offered to Fleming. Although Fleming had to be convinced that, oh, don't worry, you can keep an eye out for opportunities to get into surgery later. Fleming starts in the inoculation department in 1906. 
Almroth Wright, the head of the department, became Fleming's mentor, and is himself quite a character that I wish I had a little more time to devote to. Wright was a tall and bulky man, uh, described as charismatic and yet abrasive. He picked up a number of nicknames, uh, quote, the Pride Street Philosopher, the Paddington Plato, Sir Almost Right, and Sir Almost Wrong. I would like to note that he was in fact knighted. He does a whole lot of good work on vaccines, which is relevant not to our current story, but almost certainly to one I have planned for the future. Wright, although grading to many, has a sizable following as well, among them Alec Fleming and John Freeman, who recruited Fleming in the first place. Fleming apparently intrigued Wright. Alec was much quieter and much smaller than most of his peers, and not much of a conversationalist. Wright actually claimed at one point, and bear in mind that this is the still very racist early 20th century here, that Fleming only spoke Eskimo, and that he would have to learn the language in order to communicate with his assistant. And on top of that, he gave his assistant crap about being Scottish. Nonetheless, Wright did come to respect his new underling, as Fleming was noted for his manual dexterity and ability to speak his mind and stand his ground, even when contradicting Wright. Over several years, Fleming gets published, develops some of his own vaccine therapies, and hones his skills and knowledge. In 1909, Fleming decides to stick with bacteriology, giving up on his original idea of becoming a surgeon. His fame starts to grow as he runs a clinic and socializes among several groups. Besides the lab, he became a prominent Freemason, and he joined the Chelsea Arts Club. Fleming's career and social life are on the up and up. But here comes the Great War. In April 1914, Fleming resigns from the Scottish Regiment, citing his work and other social engagements as consuming too much time, just months before the shooting begins. The Scottish Regiment, just months later, is shipped out to France, but Fleming is soon to follow them. Wright, still heading the inoculation department, is appointed a lieutenant colonel and shipped out to aid in the war effort, along with much of his team, all of whom were also given military ranks. I think it's funny that Fleming achieves the rank of lieutenant, but only after resigning from the army, and not through his shooting skills, but his medicine. In Boulogne, they study wound infections and prepare a massive amount of anti-typhoid vaccines. It's been argued that without this vaccination effort, the death toll from typhoid in British forces during the war would have been tenfold, about 120,000 deaths instead of the 1,200 that actually occurred. They work in an extremely improvised laboratory, given that wartime does not lend itself to large excesses of resources. At this point in history, gangrene and tetanus are responsible for about 10% of hospital war deaths. Fleming undertakes the first comprehensive study of wound infections and finds that antiseptic use on battle wounds is often ineffective. His discovery goes contested for decades, but he is vindicated in the end. The methods he suggests become common practice by the Second World War. Fleming, of course, loses contact with those on the other side of the First Great War, but befriends French and American colleagues during this time period. An American physician, Roger Lee, is quoted as having said, Quote, I at once took a tremendous shine to Fleming, who said practically nothing. Noticing a bit of a theme here? However, Fleming's reputation continues to grow throughout the war, and he actually is invited to give lectures. Although, again, his modest personality causes him some trouble. Apparently, he was difficult to hear and often self-deprecating. Alec, at this point, also gets married to a Sarah McElroy. Seven years his senior, which is very unusual for the time. She is described as almost his opposite, 
extroverted and outgoing, much the opposite of her husband. We unfortunately are left with no record as to how the couple met and came to be, but as far as we know, their marriage was a stable and happy one. I'd like to take a quick detour now to describe our protagonist in a little more detail, since I think we can say for sure that at this point he's pretty much fully grown. And we're just about now to get into the most relevant part of his story, and I'd like, to, I'd like for you to have a better image of who we're working with here. So, Fleming was short at only 5'6". He had blue eyes, fair hair that grayed as he aged. He had a large head and eyes, a bent nose broken from an accident as a boy. He would close his eyes when talking and then open them and stare at you. He often sang at work, always wore a brightly colored bow tie, and smoked a crap load. 60 cigarettes a workday, which he rolled himself. Fleming was nicknamed Flem by his colleagues. He was a man of few words, though not necessarily unfriendly. I have here another quote describing him. A conversation with him was like playing tennis with a man who, when he received a service, put the ball in his pocket. Apparently, he was incredibly comfortable with silence and could stare at someone without exchanging a word, in total comfort. His favorite snooker, which is a game similar to Billiard's, partner was the artist Vivian Pitchford, who was deaf so that he didn't have to make small talk. By 1919, Fleming receives a number of promotions, and with them, his own lab and additional freedom of research. Most of the equipment was improvised and handmade, with much of the glassware actually being made by Fleming himself. Fleming really could just do everything. He was also apparently a bit of a hoarder, and kind of messy, although the many opportunities for contamination actually kind of pay off. Here he makes his first major discovery, lysosomes. Fleming had a remarkable ability to capitalize on interesting accidents, which would pay off now, and as we'll see, later on too. In 1921, Fleming comes down with a cold. Because he's just that kind of guy, he cultivates a sample of his own nasal mucus. I mean, Fleming's phlegm. A few weeks later, he shows it to his research student. As would be expected, there were a large number of bacterial colonies growing. However, near his snot sample, bacterial growth was inhibited. They tested this further by mixing in mucus with a live sample of bacteria, which was quickly killed off. He tries out mucus from his colleagues and a range of other bodily fluids. Tears, blood, sputum, and peritoneal fluid. No idea how he got that. Eventually, further experimentation leads to the discovery of lysozyme, which are the enzymes that destroy the cell walls of bacteria, present in a large number of organic sources. He brings his research to other experts, who are not very interested. He continues to explore possible uses of lysozyme in healthcare. My favorite part of this line of research is that it was discovered that human tears are a good source of lysozyme. As such, laboratory boys were paid per session to have lemon juice squeezed into their eyes to make them cry, and then they would harvest the tears for science. I kid you not. Fleming reportedly told a technician, quote, If you cry enough, you will soon be able to retire. The Duchess of York on one visit was given an onion and had her tears harvested, which she recalled to a biographer decades later. A large-scale collection of tears was actually picked up by the media at the time, and definitely caught some attention in the public eye. After all of his work on the lysosomes, we come to what we've all been waiting for. In 1927, Fleming, with Merlin Price, another research scholar, was writing a chapter on Staphylococcus for the book A System of Bacteriology, and he was in the process of replicating experiments to confirm the observations he planned to put in the paper. 
He was examining the possibility that different colors of Staphylococcus might indicate different things about the bacteria. Fleming had a strange and honestly messy habit of leaving his petri dishes out for an extra amount of time. On September 3rd, 1928, Price pays Fleming a visit, and Fleming shows him the petri dishes. Quote, That's funny, he said. Streptococcus tends to gather like grapes, but on this particular petri dish, there's a big glob of mold. Normally, that's pretty common, and as you've probably seen in your own experiences with bread or your house, mold is liable to grow just about anywhere. What was interesting was that surrounding the mold on the dish, the bacteria refused to grow. Fleming called this substance mold juice. In a lovely irony, apparently Price was wholly unimpressed. Quote, I didn't know what was going through his mind, but for my own part, I thought that the lysis was due to acids produced by the mold. But pandering to the great man, I actually said, that's how you discover lysozyme. Apparently, he paraded the plate around to several other colleagues, none of whom were particularly interested either. Fleming then subcultured a small sample of the fungus and cultured it in a liquid medium instead of in solid auger. He took photos and, and preserved the original plate. It actually still exists today, a national treasure at the British Library, where it was placed in 1965 with the rest of his papers. Now, where did the fungi come from? No one can really say. There have been a multitude of theories, some pretty hilarious. One newspaper actually claimed that Fleming ate a moldy cheese sandwich. Another reported that the bombing of a nearby train station in 1940 had somehow led to cultures being disrupted, which is neither chronologically nor scientifically logical, if you'll notice. The windows to the outside were rarely open, and honestly, most likely the spores had probably been on someone's clothing or were just airborne, and we'll never really be able to confirm where they came from. Fleming, however, still knew he was onto something. With the help of a fungi expert, they figured out that the responsible fungi was from the penicillium family of molds. This comes in handy when they decide the name, the product of the fungi. Fleming's preferred name was our aforementioned mold juice, which frankly sounds pretty gross. Mold broth filtrate was his full name for it, which is not much better in the aesthetics department. Drawing from the name of the fungus responsible, they instead christened the new discovery penicillin. Fleming then spends a good chunk of time figuring out how to grow the fungi efficiently, and also tried his mold juice on various bacteria. He figured out that it only affected gram-positive bacteria. What that means is that those bacteria can be dyed with a specific purple dye. If they are able to be dyed, they are called gram-positive bacteria. If they are unable to be dyed, they are called gram-negative bacteria. He also naturally wanted to find out if there are other fungi with useful antibiotic properties. Alec enlists friends from the Chelsea Arts Club to give him any samples of mold that they come across. They collect molds from, I kid you not, cheese, jelly, boots, and pretty much anything he could find. The search only turned up one more possible fungi that might be useful, which they did not pursue further as it turned out to affect the same bacteria. Next up, the lab needed to determine if the new product had potential clinical uses. They figured out how to produce more of it, extract it, and that it was soluble in alcohol. Toxicity was the next task at hand. They had to figure out whether this new compound would actually be dangerous. And so they injected it into animals. Stuart Craddock, another member of the lab, actually agreed to test it on himself, which, for the record, is not a good idea. Do not ever try that at home. He grew some of the penicillium mold in milk, and then, quote, ate the product 
which in the curdled milk after a week or so was very much like Stilton cheese. It did me no harm. I would like again to reiterate, please do not eat mold that you find on anything. From there, they proceeded to some tests of penicillin as an antiseptic, topically applied to infections or wounds. Several tries were had, all resulting in failure. Penicillin, as it turns out, isn't capable of penetrating deeper into tissues when applied topically, and so failed to have any sort of effect. Unfortunately, they did not try injections, which they would have found to be much more effective. Instead, the lab published their findings to a little fanfare, and actually sent the antibiotic out to labs as a way to isolate bacteria unaffected by penicillin. The first successful clinical use of penicillin comes a few years later. Keith Rogers, another research student, came down with an eye infection a few days before a shooting competition. Again, random extracurricular activities seem to play a major role in Fleming's life. Fleming prepared a penicillin solution for him, applied it to his eyes, which then cleared up very quickly. However, with little other evidence for its efficacy, Fleming had difficulty convincing anyone to help him further purify penicillin. When later criticized for not bringing penicillin to practical use earlier, Fleming, Fleming retorted, quote, Why didn't you? All the information was in the literature. Fleming, however, gets a tad discouraged, unable to find anyone to work with him in order to further purify penicillin. Penicillin fades out of the picture for a while. Some notable highlights during this interim period. At one point, Fleming created germ paintings for the king and queen. What that means is he used different colored bacteria to draw out landscapes, ballerinas, nursing mother, guardsmen, and even the dune, a river near Fleming's birthplace. Apparently, the queen was unimpressed. He does some important research on the mechanism of sulfanamide drugs, which you might remember Domag discovered last week. Finally, it is the late 1930s. And you know it's coming on the world stage. Next week, World War II breaks out, and with it, the miracle of penicillin comes to fruition. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. Feel free to always reach out, especially with feedback at our Facebook page, website, or my email. If you can, leave me a review on whatever platform you're listening. Good reviews help me find more viewers, and bad reviews help me get better. Our cover art is by Angie Lee, and our music is from Muse Open. Thanks for listening.